What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a kink in the line, a cyber attack on America's energy artery. CNBC's Brian Sullivan. We have millions of miles of pipeline, but none carry so much fuel to such an important area. And are Eamon Javers on the dark side behind it? They are known to be highly professional. They claim that they donate a portion of the stolen funds to charities. So this is criminals selling criminal services to other criminals. The latest jobs report a disappointing surprise. Anthony Scaramucci says the data just needs to catch up to the new economy. There's a lot of jobs out there, even people working remotely from home that just haven't been picked up. I don't buy the argument that people are just staying home to take advantage of the unemployment benefit. Plus the mooch on getting the hell out of Doge. Elon Musk's SNL skit sent the joke token plummeting. We don't think it will reach escape velocity. And Dr. Scott Gottlieb says the pandemic may seem under control here at home, but we need to think bigger. You haven't heard a lot of talk about the lack of global supply of vaccine this weekend because a lot of people have declared victory and moved on, but we have not solved the problem. It's Monday, May 10th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. There's so much to talk about. First up today on this Monday podcast, the country's largest gasoline pipeline is mostly out of commission, shut down by its operator Colonial Pipeline on Friday in response to a ransomware cyber attack. Citing sources, NBC News says a Russian criminal group known as DarkSide may be responsible. Hackers reportedly stole data from Colonial's internal computer systems, locked them, and demanded payment. We still don't know how much. The main pipeline, which runs more than 5,000 miles, remains shut down. Brian Sullivan has the latest on the Colonial Pipeline and the impact on the energy market. Good morning to you, Brian. It's uh, been quite a weekend. This is America's energy artery. Arguably, it is the single most important pipeline in the United States. We have millions of miles of pipeline, but none carry so much fuel to such an important area. There's the path. Basically, this takes oil and gas, jet fuel, refined products from the Houston and Louisiana areas where they get crude oil, refine the products, and brings it up the East Coast. A lot of it gets taken off in Georgia. It comes up through Virginia and New York and New Jersey. Let's put this into perspective. We're talking about 45% of the fuel product used on the East Coast comes via the Colonial Pipeline. 14 states, seven major airports. This is a big deal. It is offline almost entirely. The company's saying late last night that certain of those branches may actually be coming back online, but overall, the main lines are down. Guys, the question is this. We don't know why. Colonial Pipeline shut the line down itself. The hackers did not, according to Colonial, shut it down. Colonial said they shut it down proactively to, quote, contain the threat. We just don't know what the threat was. We don't know what power the hackers may have or had over the pipeline. In other words, why the threat was so serious they might have had to shut it off 
to prevent something catastrophic and how much money they are demanding, whether Cloney will pay, numerous calls, numerous texts, numerous emails to the company over the weekend, guys, remaining uh, untethered, shall we say. Thankfully, aside from short pops, guys, we have not seen huge takeout and price spikes from Colonial shutdowns. So it really comes down, Andrew, to how long it is down, not necessarily that it is down, because right now we have enough supply at least for a couple of days, maybe a little longer. Uh, Brian, I got a million questions. Total cost uh, to Colonial, uh, we've talked about cyber insurance for years. Does cyber insurance cover this, this kind of uh, catastrophe? I'm sure there are other business leaders that are watching this this morning thinking to themselves, this could happen to me, what do I do? Uh, there's, a, there's a handful of questions to, to bat around. Yeah, there is. Cyber insurance, and Eamon probably better for this, should, yes. They've also got a variety of other types of insurance. To your first question, Andrew, the total cost, we don't know because Colonial is private. By the way, it's owned by five names you know well, Andrew. KKR is a part owner. One of a pension company from Australia is a part owner. Case du Quebec, a big Canadian investor, is a part owner. Coke Capital, the Koch brothers, that is a part owner. It's a weird structure. It's five big institutional owners who formed, well, they didn't form, they bought this company. The company was formed in the 1960s. Shell Midstream, one of the owners as well, those five own, caught 20% roughly each, some more, some less. They're based in Alpharetta, Georgia. So it's kind of an operating subsidiary, Andrew, of those five companies. Either way, tight-lipped, closed, don't know the total cost yet. Okay. Eamon Javers joins us uh, with a look uh, at this group known as Darkside. Darkside. Eamon. Yeah, Joe, that's right. Darkside is the number one suspect. It can be tricky to do attribution here in cybersecurity, but that's who experts think is behind this. It's a relatively new group. They do ransomware as a service. That is, uh, they offer the ransomware out to other criminal gangs, and the other criminal gangs do the actual attacks and then kick back money to the Darkside group that launched this ransomware in the first place. So it's a sort of a criminal syndicate, if you think of it that way. And the, group, the folks over at Cyber Reason, a cybersecurity firm, have been doing some analysis of this bad guy group. They put out this report in April on Darkside, and here's what they found. They're targeting mostly English-speaking countries, and they avoid former Soviet bloc nations, and that might give you a big clue as to who they are and where they're located. They have a code of conduct that they publish on the dark web that actually prohibits certain types of attacks on hospitals, nonprofits, and governments. They are known to be highly professional. The group has a help desk to facilitate negotiations. Uh, they also have a phone number you can call uh, to talk to an agent there if you need some help uh, paying your ransom if you've been hacked. Uh, they claim that they donate a portion of the stolen funds to charities here, although there's been some dispute and some of the charities have apparently refused to take this money because obviously it's coming from a criminal gang. They've also been threatening to hit NASDAQ-listed companies uh, and threatening to release sensitive market-moving information on those companies uh, before that information is public. So there's a, a whole range of different hostile activity being take, undertaken by this broad group uh, known as DarkSide. It's not clear exactly who they are or exactly where they are, Joe, but the idea is that uh, because they're uh, protecting, so to speak, their own neighborhood, that is the former Soviet bloc countries, uh, and targeting English-speaking countries, you do get a sense of maybe who's behind all this. Do they uh, mention Dogecoin at all, Eamon? I mean, would they take Dogecoin <laughs> or would they 
you think they'd rather have a more established maybe uh, Ethereum or, or Bitcoin? Do you know? I don't know if they have the risk appetite for Dogecoin, right? I mean, it's moving all over the place. You might Would not want to take that. Would it be with crypto, though? You know, look, are they ask, are they, how do they want it? They, they, do, ask, they, they do ask for crypto. Uh, usually, uh, some of these bad guys groups will, uh, will ask for Monero, which is a more anonymous type of crypto. Uh, but they do take all sorts of payments. Uh, but it's not like negotiating with the Somali pirates. Remember those guys where they literally fly a helicopter over the area where the pirates were and just drop duffel bags full of cash down in order to get the hostages yeah. back? Right. This like, is all digital, <laughs> and it's all cryptocurrency, but it's the same basic principle. Like, like that scene in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> That's right. John could be. Yeah. Right. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Over the bridge, and they're up, they'll be on motorbikes. Go ahead, Beth. Hey, Eamon, you, you mentioned yeah. they were targeting... Yeah. NASDAQ companies specifically. Why, why NASDAQ companies? What's the backstory? Well, the folks over at Cyber Reason sent us a, a screen grab last night from uh, the website on the dark web of this group, Dark Side. And on that website, they talk about they have access into uh, NASDAQ listed companies uh, and they can sell that access to other criminal gangs uh, in order to uh, hurt some of those entities. Uh, presumably you can hit them up for ransom and say, look, we're going to release this data unless, and it's going to move your stock price negatively, obviously, uh, unless you pay us. And so the, the idea here is that they're claiming to their own customers, that is other criminal gangs, that they have this capability. We don't know if they have that capability, but that's, but that's up on their website right now. And they seem to be credible in terms of some of these other threats that we've seen. It's just so weird because it's not like the NASDAQ has the earnings information for their listed companies before you know, they put them out generally. It, it, it's just an odd thing to, to assume that the NASDAQ has potentially damaging information about these companies or would have that information sooner than the general public would. That's not the way they release earnings. Right. No, to be clear, what they're talking about is they have the ability to hack into NASDAQ listed companies, right? So the companies, not the NASDAQ itself. Uh, yeah, so but, the companies that are trading on but that, NASDAQ. I just don't understand what, why the NASDAQ listed companies... It's not like they're running through the NASDAQ's computer systems. That's the weird thing I don't get. No, they'd be hitting the company's own computer system. So if you're a company X and you're, you trade on the NASDAQ, they're hitting company X's servers here, presumably getting earnings data and other you know, IP and, and technical information. But they just don't like the NASDAQ? The com why company or why target NASDAQ companies? They, they, mentioned the NASDAQ, they, they mentioned the NASDAQ specifically. I don't know. Maybe they think it's cool because it's tech-related and they're, they're techies themselves. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's that's the brag that's on their their website uh, that they're putting out to their own customers who, again, are other criminals. So this is criminals selling criminal services to other criminals. Eamon, thanks. Pretty complicated stuff. Travel continuing to see a rebound with a number, a record number of people flying this weekend, according to the TSA. One point seven million people were screened on Friday. That tops the pandemic era record that was set just the day before. The agency says that another 1.4 million people were screened on Saturday. And guys, I don't know if either of you traveled at all this weekend, but one thing I noticed for sure, driving down uh, to see my mom, um, there was a lot of traffic on the road, especially coming back yesterday. There were hour delays to try and get across the GW yeah. Bridge. And I saw accidents in a lot of places, too. So all of those car insurance companies that have kind of gotten by not having to pay as many claims because people weren't driving as much. It sure th seems like things are back to normal at this point. Just traveling locally. I, I, I didn't travel that far, you know, 20, then, 25 yeah, miles. It, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's totally different now. Um, and there are a couple times, I, you know, 
I, do, um, I will never miss the pandemic, okay, I, it, once it's gone. But man, the traffic is, is coming back and it was like, ugh, you know, here we go. Uh, waiting yeah. at some lights where, you, you know, it. it's not a very fast light. And I see where I am and I see I'm going to, there's three lights. I'm, I'm putting in time here. It's going to be at least three lights. Right. And some of them, are, you know, with all the left-hand <laughs> turn signals and this and that, you know it's going to be, it's right. like, okay, uh, adding five minutes on to these are all small problems, yep. but, and, and it's good, and I'm happy, and, you know, the restaurants are looking better, and I feel when I go, it's, you know, being vaccinated, and everyone in the family, you know, being vaccinated, it's like, it's liberating. It's good. It's all good. Not complaining, except that it's Monday. But that's Except that it's Monday. <laughs> uh, we had the same traffic problems you did, Becky, when we went to visit my mother. So, anyway, and, and a, and a yeah. second happy Mother's Day to you and to all the mothers uh, who hopefully got the chance to celebrate yesterday. Next on Squawk Pod, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb on easing virus restrictions and hopefully, maybe, an end to mask wearing. We've hit our own goal, so we've succeeded and met our own goal. We just are reluctant to relax the measures now. Back after this. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. According to the CDC, more than 43% of all adults are now fully vaccinated in the United States. This is prompting some conversations around easing masking policies for indoor gatherings as we head right into the summer months. Joining us right now to talk about that and more is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And his latest op-ed that he talks about this morning gives reference to President Biden's support of breaking vaccine patents and what the United States could do instead. Scott, let's start with this um, op-ed that you have out today. It's you and, and, and another colleague who have been looking through these issues, and you're, you're pretty concerned about what you think is bad policy. What, what happens? If we break patents, do you think we get to these vaccines sooner? I co-wrote the piece uh, right with Lou Borio, who is the chief scientific officer at FDA and worked on the National Security Council in the last administration. I, the concern here is that it's really not going to solve the problem. I mean, this was a political gesture. A lot of people have declared victory and moved on. But this doesn't solve the challenge of trying to get more vaccines into low and middle income countries. The reality is we're sitting on a lot of supply here in the United States. There's at least 100 million doses in the system that aren't being used and probably aren't going to be used that could be distributed to low income countries. And by the end of July, one estimate is that we'll have about 300 million doses in the United States. If we want to solve the immediate challenge, we should be getting more of those doses to those countries. If we want to solve the long-term challenge, we should be ramping up supply in the manufacturing sites that are currently operating. That's the most efficient way to get more supply around the world. We can work on tech transfers with some local producers in some of these countries, South Africa, India, Brazil, to do some of the fill finishing steps. And I think we should be doing that to try to build global capacities. 
But by next year, we're going to have a lot of vaccine. By the end of next year, just the three manufacturers that are currently producing probably are going to make 12 billion doses. So we're going to have a lot of vaccine to supply the world. It's not going to be a supply issue next year. It's really just a supply issue over the next six months. And the only way to solve that challenge is to share more of the doses that we're producing. Even if we do a full-on tech transfer, which the Biden plan doesn't contemplate, it contemplates other countries trying to reverse engineer our manufacturing processes, which take a long time. But even if we did a full-on tech transfer collaboration, we'd take at least six months to 12 months. And I'll give you as an example, J&J is now working with Merck so that Merck can start making the J&J vaccine. They're anticipating that's going to take six months. So you have two established manufacturers that are up and running doing full-on tech transfer where they're cooperating, and that's going to take at least six months. You know, we've talked about this again and again, and I, you've been pretty clear that this is what you think is the best way of doing things that whole time. If we've got extra doses and we're not sharing them, is that just another political expediency point? We just don't want to look like we're giving away vaccines if there's anybody here in the United States who still wants one? Well, look, I think the administration wants to build up a stockpile heading into the fall in case we need to give part of the population boosters. But my premise is that we should trust our own supply chain. Right now, the manufacturers, Moderna, Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, J&J, are ramping up supply. They have pretty stable supply. They haven't had major problems. I mean, Moderna and Pfizer have not had major problems in their manufacturing. So we should trust that supply chain and not be stockpiling so much when there's a crisis around the world. I think that, you know, we can't be, on the one hand, giving away the intellectual property and not really protecting you know, American companies overseas, and on the other hand, holding on to their finished goods, which the countries need right now. It seems somewhat cynical to me. So, you know, at the very least, they should be doing both. I don't understand why they're holding on to vaccine supplies and giving away the intellectual property. But I think we should be uh, erring on the side of giving away the vaccines first before we give away the IP. Hey, Scott, uh, I'm sure you saw when the Gates Foundation last week reversed course on this issue of IP and said that they would support a narrow waiver uh, on this IP issue uh, there are others who say you can't have a narrow waiver because once the, the special uh, sauce and the ingredients are delivered uh, and people exposed uh, to, to, up to others outside of your company, you've sort of lost, lost control of it. Who's right? Look, I don't know what a narrow waiver is. Um, and I'm not saying countries can't figure out how to reverse engineer these processes. China probably will figure that out. But even if you look at Pfizer, they manufacture this vaccine over about a half a dozen different sites um, because of the specialized equipment they need. need. The rate-limiting step there is getting the mixing machines that they custom make, which cost about $200 million each. They can't get enough of them. So these are hard processes to reverse engineer in any timely way. That said, I think part of the process potentially could be um, offshore. You could do some of the fill finishing of these vaccines in other manufacturing sites in other countries if you're working closely with them. So I think we do have to build local capacities in countries like you know, South Africa, India, that do have vaccine manufacturers right now and could be scaled to do more of this work so that we could share on some of these some of these tasks. But the idea that anyone's going to be able to reverse engineer these processes quickly to solve the immediate cr crisis, it's not going to happen. And in the long term, we're going to have ample supply. So this is really just a political gesture. People have long wanted to dismantle trips. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians have especially, but a lot of groups have, a lot of third-party groups. They don't believe in international in intellectual property protections. And so this was hailed as a victory. And my fear is a lot of the liberal groups that were supporting this have moved on. You haven't heard a lot of talk about the lack of global <laughs> supply of vaccine this weekend because a lot of people have declared victory and moved on. But we have yeah. not solved the problem. We haven't fixed the problem. Right. Scott, let, let's talk about 
guidelines from the CDC, from the states about what you can and should be doing if you're vaccinated, if you're not vaccinated? Because I got to tell you, the, the lines are moving pretty quickly and I don't even know what the official guidance is anymore. What, <laughs> where do we stand? People are kind of doing what they feel comfortable with on their own. Well, I think that's what's going to happen. People need to judge their individual risk and take precautions based on their circumstance, whether they're vaccinated, whether they feel vulnerable, whether they're around vulnerable people. And that needs to be a key consideration. The bottom line is that we're fast approaching the metric when a lot of public health officials said we should start relaxing these public health measures in a wholesale fashion, which is around 10 cases per 100,000 people on a daily basis. A lot of states are well below that. About half the states are at 10 cases a day right now. Um, the national average is around 13, about, you know, maybe Five to 10 states are around five to seven cases a day per 100,000 people. We should be lifting the mask ordinances outside in a wholesale fashion. I think we should be lifting them in indoor settings as well in many states. So we've hit we've hit our own goal. So we've succeeded and, and met our own goal. We just are reluctant to relax the measures now. The problem with that is businesses um, look to the CDC almost for a CYA. They're not going to relax the standards until they have an official telling them they can relax the standards because they think it opens them up to lawsuits if they relax before the government says it's okay to do so. Right. And this is the problem because CDC is put in an uncomfortable position of having to opine on every facet of you know American life right now. You look at their summer camp guidance, you have to stay within six feet of someone who's not in your bunk, wear a mask, three feet for someone who's in your bunk, sleep head to toe. You can't engage in uh, activities that require shouting. So basically outlaws kickball. I wouldn't be waiting for a bit for a CDC to put out guidance on return to work in an office. I think the businesses need to come together, maybe work with some independent public health authorities, health commissioners in cities, and put out their own guidelines. I wrote about this last week in the Wall Street Journal, because if they wait for CDC to put out guidance, I don't think they're going to like what they get. And CDC has not opined yet on office-based work. They've, ref they've been reluctant to do that. So they've left the ground for businesses to step in and do that on their own. I think people who don't want to be... Um, you know, encumbered by a restrictive CDC guidance at this point, should be looking to try to develop their own uh, guidelines through public-private partnerships with authoritative groups. Now's the time to do it. Although most businesses don't even want to require vaccination, so why would they take a step out like that and go ahead and say they take on even more liability? Yeah, if you're working with an authoritative group, I'm not sure that you're going to have a liability. You work with city health commissioners in some of the big cities, I think you can go that route. The vaccinations are a different issue. It's a question of imposing something on people that they feel is an invasion of their you know, personal choice. Scott, thank you. Always appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you Thanks soon. Thanks a lot. Next on Squawk Pod, breaking down April's disappointing jobs report. If people are hiring, then why aren't folks applying? Skybridge Capital's Anthony Scaramucci. I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. These people want work. They don't want to sit around with the unemployment benefits and just milk the system. I think that that is a tired, going back into the 80s, welfare queen sort of argument. Plus, recapping Dogecoin's nosedive. That's all right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. 
Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with <laughs> Becky Quick and Joe Kernan and uh, Steve Leisman, uh, at least for a brief moment. And I'm sure we'll have Steve back uh, in just a moment. Still looking at the jobs um, numbers. At least the top of his head. At least the top of his head. He's, he's doing still, work. He's hard at work. To figure he's out hard, those jobs. hard at work reporting. And, yes. And, still trying, and looking still looking at the numbers. jobs numbers. This can't be right. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I know for a fact Leisman's here and ready to go. He he's totally prepared he now, is. I think, because he was grinding. He was. He was crunching the numbers to the last minute because a lot of people have been wondering, is the U.S. economy about to experience a lasting shortage of labor? That's the question we've been asking ourselves since Friday. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us right now with a look at the implications for investors from the big jobs miss on Friday. What do you think, Steve? Uh, you know, Becky, forecasters spent the weekend soul searching their models, if you will, Trying to figure out what went wrong Friday with what amounted to one of the biggest jobs misses in decades and basically divided in two camps here. You got those who say it's just a blip and those who worry, hey, the U.S. could be settling into something of a more permanent labor supply shortage. J.P. Morgan, they're in the benign camp. They're saying it's hard to square this middling outcome with a variety of other data indicating the labor market is scorching hot. One thing I did this week and I crunched some numbers. One big reason for the surprise, Burbio. They look at school openings and closures. They report that April reported the biggest one-month increase in schools reopening since last October. School openings, you can see they're closely linked to women aged 25 to 54 returning to the workforce. Instead, the percentage of women in the labor force unexpectedly dropped, and it should have gone the other way. It could be more women will look for work in the months ahead or with school years so close to ending they may not come back until the fall, exacerbating the supply shortage. That effect could combine with higher unemployment benefits and a reluctance of some to return to work for health reasons, depressing labor supply during the summer. If economic growth remains strong, but labor supply remains limited, wages could be bid up and the Fed could have an inflation problem, which is what Ian Shepherdson worries about writing over the weekend. A run of hefty price increases would make for a long and uncomfortably hot summer for the Fed. So you got inflation data this week, jobless claims and retail sales, watching all of that closely to see the interaction between jobs, growth and inflation. And markets going to listen to a lot of Fed speak this week to see not how much concern the Fed has over tension, to see how much the Fed concern the Fed has over tension between labor supply and demand. Joe. All right, Steve, thanks. A high stakes economic debate is brewing over the labor market following that disappointing jobs report that we saw on Friday. Rahel Solomon joins us now with more. Good morning, Rahel. Hey, hi, Joe. Good morning. Yeah, so from the start of the enhanced unemployment benefits, critics did warn that it would discourage people from going back to work. And as vaccination rates have increased and states reopened, some business leaders and small business owners began reporting trouble finding workers. Well, now South Carolina and Montana are opting out of the additional weekly benefit, with Montana even offering a $1,200 bonus to return to work. That's despite having one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying Friday that the UI benefit does not appear to be a major factor in people returning to work, and the data largely backs that up. We think it's very important to have a big package addresses the pain this has caused 15 million Americans behind on their rent, 24 million adults and 12 million children who don't have enough to eat, small businesses failing. Um, I, you know, I think the price of doing too little is 
um, much higher than the price of doing something big. I, we think that the benefits will far outweigh the costs in the longer run. So when you look at states with the most generous unemployment benefits, in a few cases, there is still high unemployment, like in Connecticut and in New Jersey. But in other high benefit states, for example, Utah and Minnesota, unemployment is very low. So no consistent correlation there. Now, other reasons people may not be returning to work include, of course, health concerns amidst the pandemic and childcare issues, likely part of the reason we saw women's labor force participation drop in April. Andrew? Well, thank you uh, for that report. We're going to continue this conversation right now because unemployment benefits just one piece of the puzzle that could be keeping folks from returning to the workforce. Joining us right now to help make some sense of all this is Anthony Scaramucci, founder and co-managing partner of Skybridge Capital. Uh, is it is it that everyone is just hanging at home, uh, you know, trading trading Dogecoin, Anthony? What's happening here? Yeah, they're collecting unemployment benefits and they're going to Louis Vuitton with their stimulus checks. So. Listen, I think that's a lot of political posturing. And if you really look deeply into the analysis, you have to you have to factor in the seasonal adjustments. And I don't want to bore people, but there are lies and then there are damn lies and then there are statistics, Andrew. And so ultimately, the seasonal adjustment numerology now is not working for the new economy. And so there's actually more jobs out there than the 266,000. They just haven't been fully accounted for by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So uh, if you go to the uh, the Harvard president, I'm um, sorry, the Harvard professor that created this seasonal adjustment, he put out a memo last week saying that uh, making that a revisement, you'd have over a million jobs, which is more than the 988,000 that were predicted. So I think we've got to work on the Bureau of Labor Statistics in terms of the way they're analyzing the labor market now. Uh, those seasonal adjustment factors were put in place in the mid-70s during the Ford administration. So there's a lot of jobs out there, Andrew, even people working remotely from home that just haven't been picked up in the data, basically. So I don't, I don't buy the argument that people are just staying home to take advantage of the unemployment benefits. So you think, you think next month the whole thing's going to change and, and, and all of a sudden there's gonna, we're, we're going to see the light on this in terms of what the numbers show? May, it, may, it may not necessarily be n next month, but I think they have to make these adjustments now for the new economy. You know, you've got way less manufacturing in the country than you did back in the 70s. And there's a lot of jobs out there. Uh, you, you tell me, if you are working in a TikTok form, uh, producing content for TikTok, and it's not appropriately accounted for in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is it a job or isn't it? And the answer is that it is. And so I just think we have to make these adjustments now uh, and revise them pursuant to what is actually going on in the economy today, uh, not, not what happened in the past. So it's not that it's going to get fixed in a month, but I bet you over the next six to 12 months it will be, yes. It'll be, it'll be revised you're upward. You're effectively then not buying the argument with Senator Pat Toomey, making the argument that effectively these unemployment benefits are keeping people from going to work. You think that's not true? I am not. I'm not buying that argument because, you know, remember, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. These people want work. They don't want to sit around with the unemployment benefits and just milk the system. I think that that is a tired uh, going back into the 80s welfare queen sort of argument that I think is, frankly, intellectually dishonest. And it also shows that the people that are making that argument are just out of touch uh, with the people that are looking for work. People want work. There's a lot of pride in getting a job. And I think that that stuff is nonsense. And I want to push back hard on that. 
Uh, Anthony, I I'm not uh, going to dispute that, but I will tell you uh, that Steve Ratner, uh, considered a, a Democrat, uh, put out a, a chart earlier today that looks at uh, the state of Pennsylvania, where Pat uh, Senator Pat Toomey is from. And there are jobs, clearly dishwashing jobs, even preschool teacher jobs that make more money effectively on unemployment than they do actually working. Okay, so again, we're gonna we're gonna quibble on this. Are there is there a small batch of people that are making decisions like that? Uh, maybe, but by and large, people want work, Andrew. And I think that the the nonsense that people would rather stay home and not work versus work, I think is a bunch of nonsense. And I and I and I and listen. Why don't we do this? We'll get a camera and we'll go into some of these areas and we'll ask people uh, like they do. And you'll and you'll find that. You know, I've got cousins of mine that are, uh, they, the, the, there's no clams left in Oyster Bay. They're out looking for work. They don't want the unemployment benefits. All right. Uh, Anthony, I want, I want to pivot the conversation uh, to crypto, uh, if you'd indulge me, because we've spent a lot of time uh, with you talking about Bitcoin. We obviously had uh, the Elon Musk appearance over the weekend. It sent uh, Dogecoin down, not up, uh, but we're looking at Ether now at its highest level ever. We also talked to uh, Gary Gensler, uh, who spoke for the first time on CNBC on, on our air uh, on Friday. And it does suggest that there is some kind of regulation coming, but he thinks that Congress ultimately may have to regulate this, not his own agency. There's no federal authority to actually bring a regime to the crypto exchanges, whether it's stock exchanges or, or futures exchanges, there's regimes that were put in place in the 1930s to help protect against fraud and manipulation on the exchanges and protect the integrity of that. Uh, and I think that's really uh, something that uh, we'll be working with Congress and uh, if they see fit to try to bring some uh, protection for people that want to invest in this speculative asset class. Yeah, you know, listen, I saw the interview. And so what I would recommend to people is to download Gary's course from MIT, uh, because when he's teaching and he's talking as a professor, it's very different than the hat that he's wearing as a regulator. And I think that we all share this mutual vision that there will be digital currencies or digital stores of value that are relevant in our society over the next uh, decade plus. Is Dogecoin going to be one of those? Uh, there's, a, there's a group of people pumping Dogecoin. It doesn't, when you look at the underlying mechanics of Dogecoin, we don't think it will uh, reach escape velocity. Even though it's going to the moon, Andrew, we don't think it's going to reach escape velocity. Uh, the, uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin are more practical and have more widespread application. And as it relates to Bitcoin, I think, you know, I believe it's the apex predator in a space, but I think there's great irony here. We're trying to convince institutional investors to own Bitcoin, but Bitcoin doesn't even have enough juice for the crypto traders, Andrew. They want to play things like Dogecoin and these other stable coins, if you will, well, but or these that's altcoins. What, that's, but that's what that, I want to ask you about, irony. Yeah, that's, if that's part, the great irony going on right is, now. If part of this is a belief, not just a belief in, in the currency, but also people effectively trying to find the next growth trade, if you will, saying to themselves, OK, Bitcoin may go up and maybe it goes to a million ultimately. But if Dogecoin can do that much better because it's off of a lower base or if Litecoin is going to get you there or if Ripple is going to get you there or, you know, we can go through them. You know, what happens over time 
if you can't even, if, if, if the thing that actually is supposed to be the, 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 the protocol that people believe in, uh, people are going to take their money out of to invest in other things. Well, again, we're talking about crypto traders and people that love the high volatility action. You know, if you're trying to institutionalize this, I don't think that those coins will be that relevant to institutions. And I, I would just go back to the 2016, 2017 bull run in these coins. One third of the cycle was Bitcoin. And then the second third, it switched over to these other coins that you guys are referencing. Right. Uh, but okay. by the end of the cycle, it was back to Bitcoin. Anthony, always great to see you. Good Look forward to, to see you again soon. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.